Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers events in Season 3, Part 18, organized by storyline and location with a lot of tangents. Uh, These episodes this week are pretty long, longer than the usual Season 3 coverage, which is shorter usually than Seasons 1 and 2. But in this case, the original Patreon episode was three hours long, so there was a lot to chop up here. So let's jump right into it. We've talked throughout about one-off, one or two-time locations like New York or Argentina, and we get, I would argue, one place like that this week within the the sort of story universe that we see, and that's somewhere in the desert. This is early in part 18. I want to cover this section first just because it sort of exists outside of all the other places we see. And we see Cooper and Diane driving up to this row of like pylons, And Cooper gets out and he stands there and he kind of almost seems to feel the electricity in the air. And he says, this is it. And Diane says, you know, we don't, you don't have to do this. You can still turn around or something. And he tells her things could be different and they kiss and then they drive through. And that's when they get zapped into another story section. uh, The other side is what I'm going to call it. And we're going to talk about that further down the line. Mr. C, the last time we see him is in the red room where he is you know, on fire. He's just burning. And that's the end of Mr. C. He served his purpose in the plot, whatever that purpose was. I'm not entirely sure what that purpose was. Mr. C has felt to me, not to the extent of like the Richard complaints that I've made or questions, maybe not totally complaints, but feeling like Richard was never quite achieved his purpose in the story. With Mr. C, I'm more satisfied overall with those stories. I like the scenes a lot, but it feels like sort of a MacGuffin at the end of it all. It's like, okay, we followed him around looking for these coordinates and blah, blah, blah. What was the point of all that? What did it tell us about Cooper? Uh, We didn't see some big grand confrontation between the two sides of Cooper. We never even really can be sure that these are two sides, that this isn't just some different entity that looks like Cooper. But if so, what's the point? Like, what does this all achieve? Uh, If anything has the answers, maybe part 18 does, but I'm still, I don't think I've reached a satisfying or even deeply compelling answer for that question yet of of what Mr. C's purpose in the narrative is. I would love to hear feedback on that. The story section of Las Vegas for the Dougie threads, for the home life, uh, that we get resolution for after almost everything else in, in has been resolved all of these other things i've been talking about fbi in south dakota mr c the twin peaks town stuff all of that has either been resolved or just ended even the laura in 1989 and all of that and then we go back to vegas to see janie e and sunny jim hear the doorbell ring they rush to open it and lo and behold dougie is back and they embrace him and he says home One last E.T. moment there. And it's just sort of this sweet scene where the father, the loving father-husband is reunited with his family and more of the sort of the passive, gentle Dougie that we knew. Probably a little sharper, but but that sort of character that we met throughout most of the series. And uh, not the more assertive uh, Cooper who's just kind of taking over. Janie, I'll drive, blah, blah, blah. It seems a little impressed by, but I think the one they really love is the other Dougie. So it's nice that he gets to kind of come back uh, or they get something back that looks like, you know, it's it's sort of a spin-off of Cooper, so to speak. I mean, it's a clone, basically. I suppose it's a tulpa, if you want to go there. As far as storylines introduced in Twin Peaks, the town, we can go all the way back to the pilot for at least one of the stories featured in Part 18. That is Laura's family. I'm going to save most of the discussion of this for the other side section, because 
it deals with what happens in Odessa, but it is worth noting that uh, the you know the the presence or the I guess the off-screen presence of Leland and Sarah do play a part in this episode, and those have their their origins way back in the pilot, way back in the town of Twin Peaks, 1989. So it's interesting to see that ripple out into this episode. I would say um, maybe the only storyline to directly do so, because even Laura's murder is it's implicitly influential here. Like that's why he's holding her hand in the beginning to take her away from where she's going to be killed. But I don't think her, her death or her, you know, I guess it's implicit throughout the episode because this is all an alternate vision of a world in which she didn't get murdered. So, you know, in the negative sense, the Laura's murder story is present, but really it's Laura's family. That is the only uh, pilot storyline to continue to have ramifications here, which is kind of fascinating uh, when you think about it. We see Cooper come out of the curtains in uh, Glastonbury Grove, and Diane is just standing there in the woods waiting for him. It looks very strange, like almost like a set. Like it looks like it's on a soundstage. It, it doesn't feel like they're out in the woods. I think even the sound design, if I recall, adds to that. It doesn't have that like thick sound of birds or or squawking or owls, you know, whatever you would hear in the woods at night, the crickets. As I recall, it's just kind of quiet and sparse and empty. The trees look like props and the curtains are just sitting there. They're not like in that weird phase in, phase out mode. He just kind of walks through them and uh, greets Diane in this thing. And there's a strange hollowness to it. I think it's interesting that he says to her, yeah, she says, she asks if it's really him. He says, yes, it's really me, Diane. Is it really you? What? does that say first of all about who they were in the rest of the episodes both of them and what does it say about their reunion already in part 17 where uh you know they're trying to figure out who each other are and she kisses him and she says the true cooper or something like that like that there's that moment and then this reunion is like no no this is the real reunion that's almost the sense you get from watching it so it makes you look back over the rest of the show and wonder about that. I don't know if I have anything more interesting to say about that, but that's just something I was thinking about. Certainly related to the Lars family uh, storyline that I mentioned that is mostly unfolding or completely unfolding uh, on the other side of uh, Cooper and Diane's journey. Uh, it is worth noting that back in part two of The Return, we kind of had a branch off from that storyline, which was Sarah alone. And that features in this episode... Uh, as well, specifically this idea of her alone in the Palmer house by herself, getting a knock on the door from Hawk and so forth, that's echoed when we get to the other side. But again, we'll let that unfold uh, in that uh, in that part of the discussion when we get there, which is quite soon. And early in part 18, of course, we have the repeat of the exact scene from the end of part 17, although there's a little bit extra like that sort of record scratching or cricket sound or whatever it is where Cooper turns his head, there's a little red glow on his face, and then we're in the red room. Um, but that scene where he is taking Laura through the woods, she disappears, she screams, he looks around and all of that. So that that Cooper finding Laura 1989 story does get featured in part 18, albeit not with much new to add to what we saw before. We're now moving on. I call this the other side. And within this, there's a few different locations and areas of the story that are not just geographically different, but quite possibly chronologically different. Like they exist on different times, maybe even different dimensions. But this is all on the other side 
of the Twin Peaks, so to speak. Not Twin Peaks, the location, but Twin Peaks, the show we've watched up till now. So as Cooper and Diane drive through that that area, there's electricity zapping around them, and suddenly it's not daytime anymore, it's night. They're driving at night along this dark, empty road in a shot very not reminiscent but sort of predictive of where we'll end up with cooper and carrie slash laura driving in the car at night we're getting sort of a a mirror image of that which you know throughout all of this i think connections have been forged at various times between the different female characters who are sort of off to the side but but don't feel like subordinate to cooper's story they feel like they have their own independent story going even diane who as we've said is sort of a feature or a function of Cooper feels like she has her own sort of autonomy and throughout the series these characters have never interacted Sarah Audrey Diane and Laura or Carrie or any of them they never interact with one another but they echo each other and so here we have an echo between Diane and Carrie in their sort of relationship with Cooper and the shot that echoes throughout the episode so we see uh, Cooper and Diane arriving at a motel this is a flat one-story motel that looks like it's in the middle of a desert highway. And Cooper walks into the motel, and then something interesting happens. We get one of only two moments in this entire episode that Cooper is not in. Certainly from the moment he reappears in the Red Room, he's in every shot of this episode. Either that or it's like from his point of view but really i don't even know if there's like point of view shots i think he just is present in like almost every shot you do get the moment in the beginning where mike is making you know cooper he puts the hair and the gold ball down on the chair so if cooper's in the gold ball he's present even in that scene and then you get the scene where uh cooper rings the doorbell and like janie and sunny jim are running inside to the door that's like a few seconds before they open the door and we see cooper there and we see them entirely like reacting to him so i don't really count those moments but the two moments where cooper is manifestly not present where he's not like a presence in this shot or this moment is right now with diane when cooper goes inside the hotel and she's looking out her car window and later with carrie slowly approaching the door to answer it with cooper he's standing outside but he's not there in the room with her and we're getting to see her before he sees her and that feels significant we're spending a moment with her first. In this moment with Diane, what she sees is really significant. She looks out at the motel area and she sees walking from behind a column, stepping out into the opposite direction of Cooper, she sees herself. She sees an image of herself standing there looking back. And of course, this is resonant because there was a Diane, ver- there was a Tulpa version of Diane earlier. She splintered into these different personas, into NATO, into the cheerful Diane we see in the sheriff's station into the more circumspect Diane that we're with right now. Later, there'll be a letter in which she calls herself Linda. Uh, we saw, you know, we experienced her as a tape recorder in the in the original series. And through all of these different incarnations, she's been so dependent upon Cooper, reactive to him. Like all of her actions and her dialogue and gestures and everything she does is dependent upon him, whether antagonistically or complimentary and even when she's somewhat antagonistic as the Tulpa Diane he still controls her in some way but in this moment she's alone in the car it's the first chance we've gotten certainly since uh, the Tulpa Diane disappeared of like Diane alone without Cooper and she sees herself it's like she can see herself for the first time literally only when Cooper is out of the picture something else is emerging and then he comes back out the other Diane is gone and I think that feels really significant it tells us about the space that she's allowed to operate 
within as this appendage of Cooper and her opportunity kind of arising to escape from that, which we'll eventually see. I think her arc leads her towards a kind of a self, I wouldn't even say self-realization, it's like self-actualization in the most literal sense. She's actually, you know, she's creating herself by departing from Cooper and becoming that Linda, you know, rearranging the, the name from Diane to Linda. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with Diane's name if you rearrange those letters. It spells like five different characters. You take out one letter, replace it with another, and rearrange the other four. You get Annie, you get Candy, you get Linda. And then if you mess around with the extra letters that you add to her name, you get, and, and her name, you get Caroline. Like, just trust me, it's it's crazy. I'm, I went off on a tangent with this with John Thorne once, and, and uh, it was compelling. Cooper and Diane go into this motel room together, and he tells her to shut off the light, and he says, you know, come closer to me, and they kiss, they embrace, they have sex. My prayer is playing with a very ominous undertone, and this scene is so chilling. There's a lot of people who hate this scene. I haven't heard anybody complain like it's poorly executed. That doesn't almost even come up. It's just like, I hate this scene. This is so uncomfortable. It's so off-putting, and it is. It is. I find it to be extremely powerful because I think this is something Lynch has done a lot is to show this kind of isolation, specifically the isolation, discomfort, and just displeasure manifested in sex. It's obviously a part of Blue Velvet, part of Wild at Heart. Even Inland Empire, there's that scene where Nikki, she's having the affair in bed and she starts saying stuff and it's just like these real uncomfortable close-ups with them. He knows how to make sex unsexy, I guess. But the thing with this scene is we know the history here on some level, but even its relationship to that history is complicated because are we seeing an alternate version, an alternate timeline where like, that Mr. C, Mr. C never existed and that stuff with Diane didn't happen. Are we seeing uh, something that builds off from that? You know, when he came out of the curtains, was he meeting up with the Diane who had said goodbye to him in the Great Northern like a day earlier or something? Or what? What exactly is going on here? What is the relationship to the fact that she has been raped by this, basically by this character in the past? And she's covering his face and looking at it. And people have described this also as a ritual to summon Judy. I know why people don't like that theory. I mean, I think I'm inclined not to like it because I tend to scoff a little bit at when powerful psychological moments are sort of reduced to a mythological functionality. But I do think there's something to that. I think it is significant that Sam and Tracy, possibly the only, you know, we see Janie and Dougie, of course, having sex, but, you know, the couple that we see having sex way earlier in the series, as they're having sex, that's when the Judy experiment creature comes into their world. And in this sequence, when Cooper wakes up in the morning, he's in a new place that we think of as Judy's world. Just its general atmosphere, the fact that there's a diner called Judy's, the fact that Carrie's there, and Judy slash Sarah seem to be the one who moved her in the first place. All this stuff going on there. There does seem to be some possible significance there. And certainly Mark Frost may see it that way because he wrote about like Thelema and uh, Jack Parsons and this whole idea of a sex ritual, a magic, black magic ritual in the desert summoning a spirit. I think that's where people got that idea in the first place is from the secret history. And then they noticed the correspondence with Sam and Tracy. So there is that element. But again, what I'm most interested in here is the psychological component. I find it hard to articulate, I guess. There's something happening here. I, I know what it is as I watch it, but I haven't really been able to exactly put it into words yet. What, what, what this what this moment signifies. I know it on the gut level, if that makes sense. The next story subsection within this story section 
is Odessa. That's where Cooper wakes up the next morning or on the outskirts of Odessa because he's in a motel, but it's a different motel room. The exterior of the motel is totally different. When he gets to the car, it's a different car. During the night, they have moved yet again. They've moved to some other level or realm or something. Cooper gets a letter. It's addressed to Richards from Linda. And, you know, it says, don't look for me. I've gone. I don't recognize you anymore. I think it's significant on two levels. I do think Diane and her autonomy, I think that's her arc, is this escape from Cooper. But again, there's the sense in which she's a part of Cooper. She's something that he has been trying to reunite with almost throughout the entire series in a way. And that she's abandoned him now. And uh, he's this sour figure who, again, I'm insistent that that sour figure emerged from the curtains in the red room. But the two phenomena do seem to be somewhat parallel here. We already saw that disconnect, so I don't think it matters that he was already becoming this Richard character. We've seen that disconnect in their scenes together up to this point. And she says in the letter, I don't recognize you. I think this is Cooper losing that. Let's go back to Martha Nockhamson here. Passion of David Lynch. She talks a lot about Lynch's envisioning of the feminine energy as this sort of positive energy, as seeing the Red Room as a positive, feminine-guided space. And seeing this energy in, in a lot of his work, you know, this idea, she reads it through a very feminist lens and sees the way that he articulates certain psychic spaces and a certain mode of being, of a willingness to sort of go with the flow and let yourself be guided by the energies of the universe and not try to impose yourself on it with a force of will, that she sees this and sees Lynch seeing it as a kind of a feminine energy and characterizing it as such. And so there's both like a positive and a negative feature then to Diane's relationship to Cooper, I think. The fact that she's always been this kind of appendage of him, but that also in a way speaks something positive of Cooper in this light, in the sense that he had that component to his personality that he was able to tap into. And that was part of what guided him in terms of his intuition and his ability to of congress with these spiritual energies here we see him severed from that permanently and so if he's separated from diane now he carries on with his mission or whatever it is trying to find laura slash carrie there's a sense in which he's trying to replace diane with carrie he can't and he's also trying to replace laura with carrie because carrie isn't quite laura you know she's something different but he's like stubbornly pulling this thing to be like this is dragging it almost like he was dragging laura through the woods in part 17 you're gonna be this thing and not responding to so much as imposing himself upon something. Now, he is responding in the sense that he's getting these signs. You know, he, he gets in his car, he drives around, he passes Judy's diner. Okay, there's a sign. He goes inside of Judy's, he meets the waitress, he asks her if there's another waitress who works there. She says yes, and, you know, he ends up in Carrie Page's neighborhood where this woman answers the door, says her name is Carrie Page, she's got a southern accent, she looks just like Lara would look if, you know, 25 years had gone by. She had reached middle-aged and resettled in Texas or something. There is a force sort of guiding him here, but his reaction to this force is not to say, okay, you're this now, you're Carrie. Okay, tell me about Carrie or whatever. He's still trying to bring this thing to it. I'm going to bring you to Twin Peaks. You're Lara Palmer. That's, that's who you are. That's what you are. You know, I'm going to lead you there. So if you want to read it this way in this sort of Martha Nockhamson reading, and she applies this reading to the Red Room in, part, in episode 29, she feels because he enters the Red Room on a, on a quest to save Annie, that A, the chivalric nature of it, where it's sort of this, you know, 
archetype of the male hero rescuing the female in distress because of that, but also because he has a mission at all. Like he's not coming there to hear and receive things. He's coming there to impose himself on this environment and try and reach something and push towards something. And also just the fact that she reads Frost's role in the series is imposing these sort of more masculine conventional narrative archetypes that Frost was the one who set up the premise of Cooper going to the Red Room to rescue Annie, that Lynch has kind of struck into that. For all of those reasons, she sees his entry into episode 29 as being antithetical to his entry in episode 2, and as such, the Red Room is characterized in different ways, and his exercise of will is what, you know, basically does him in and allows him to be possessed by Bob there. So you could see this in a similar light where he's in this environment, he's getting signals, but his way of responding to them is to sort of insist on the narrative he knows. And the narrative he knows is this is Laura, she's from Twin Peaks, I'm supposed to find her and and therefore I'm supposed to bring her back and I guess I'll bring her back to her home. The fact that he actually takes her all the way to the Palmer house almost makes it like, gee, maybe in part 17 he really did mean literally her home. Yes, they're going towards the gold pool and all of that, but maybe, you know, he was going to go into the giant space and just like Mr. C does, he would see the Palmer house, but this time it wouldn't change and he'd lead her through the screen to the Palmer house and drop her back off at her door. If that's really what he was going to do, good God. But, you know, even in part 18 where she's now an older woman, Leland is supposedly dead and she's not, you know, she's safe, but he's still like, there's still a stubbornness to it and a sort of pointlessness to it. But that's the narrative he knows, so he exercises that. A few other things happen, of course, along this route. When he's in Judy's diner, a bunch of cowboys are uh, harassing the waitress and he tells them to stop and then he disarms all of them and throws their guns into the uh, fry grease. But this whole scene is dealt with really weirdly. When he has their gun, he's like pointing it, walking around the whole diner, pointing it at the customers and the waitress and the chef, and they're all unnerved by him. Like they don't know what to make of him. We just really see that ambivalence of the good and the bad here. And then uh, when he goes to Carrie's house, she doesn't recognize Leland's name. She seems to have some moment of recognition when he says Sarah's name. She doesn't say, yes, I remember her, but she goes, what's going on here? And she needs to get out of town. So she's says let's go and as she goes to get her coat cooper comes into the room he looks around there's a dead man lying on the chair he's got a big gash big wound there's a little white horse on the mantle which is certainly interesting and carrie comes out she doesn't comment on it at all she's not like oh hey that guy over there yeah he died because of this or whatever when she opened the door for cooper she said you're fbi did you find him he's like no so maybe she still thinks he knows what's going on anyways even though you know he gave a different reason for being there but for whatever reason she never explained she gives one last look back at the guy i'm not sure you can make any sense of this uh, it does, it feels almost just like a lynch gesture, like he wanted there to be something troubling in that house, and he literalized it in this form. Something troubled, but concluded. Like, the trouble has concluded, but the after stench of it is still lingering there. Maybe. I don't know. So Carrie and Cooper drive off together into the night, into the long, long night. You know, the drive from Texas to Washington, it takes a while, and it's, you'd be driving at night, I think you'd be driving in the daytime, there's just, they're just driving at night, just night, all the time. In some ways, this feels like a uh, a, a more realistic, down-to-earth environment. In some ways, it feels like an almost more heightened, symbolic environment. Everything is just simple and plain. It's almost like a medieval tapestry. It's like, okay, here's the castle, just castle form. You got it. There it is. Here's the people on the road. You know, there's no sense of, like, proportion or anything you know we get that one shot of them walking out from the gas station it's just like a series of very pared down 
simple images that are exactly what they need to be. There's a moment of anxiety where the headlights appear behind them. Are they following them? And then they eventually pass in the night and drive by. Cooper just has this stern expression the whole time. This is so far, so far from any Cooper we've known in The Return and certainly in seasons one and two. There's no pleasure. This guy gets no pleasure from anything. He doesn't enjoy his coffee, as somebody pointed out. I guess I should have saved that for the coffee, pie, and donut section, but we don't have much to talk about there. Yeah, this is the anti-Cooper in a different way than Mr. C was the anti-Cooper. As they're driving along, they just, they don't speak at all. People hated this. They're like, why? This is literally, I think, nine minutes long of no talking, just driving. Different shots of them driving. It's not all one shot, but what happens? They stop at a gas station, some headlights pass them, and other than that, they just drive. And she says a few things. As somebody who's moved from place to place on occasion and, you know, it was like everybody probably at some point sort of gone on a road trip and you're leaving a place behind. It's like as you're driving away, it's like the tendrils of that place, especially if you're actually moving. You're not just going on a vacation or something. They kind of remove and you're almost like, wow, that's like behind me now or whatever, you know, for good or worse. Maybe it's sad. Maybe it's happy. But you get that a little when she's talking about Odessa. I tried to make a place there. You know, it's like she's been there for years, for decades maybe, and now it's just gone. There it's in the past. It's over. You know, the moment is over. And we're moving on to something else now. Cooper just doesn't engage her at all. Again, there's no interest in Carrier Laura. Like, it's just she's this vessel he has to, like, carry. There's a very Arthurian aspect to this, where Laura is like the grail or the object that has to be pursued or attained or transported. There's no attempt to engage with her as an individual. You know, he's gentle enough. Do you recognize this place? Can you come with me? Like, he's not forceful or rude at any point, but there's no connection between them. And I did a visual tribute once to Cooper and Laura many years ago, right before I made Journey Through Twin Peaks. I think it was actually the last piece of Twin Peaks work that I did before the journey videos and in that you see them sort of reaching towards each other through these literal screens but also just sort of figurative screens like this passage of time the difference of space this person who was dead before the other person even found out they existed and the sort of poignant connection between them but here it's just a total disconnect and uh, it'd be fun to sort of make a sequel to that Cooper and Laura visual tribute with their scenes together in the return and kind of look at that big picture of it it does feel like there's something meta going on here Lynch said in 2000 Twin Peaks is dead as a doornail I'm never going back to it and then he changed his mind Frost came to him with some idea Dougie stuff Cooper coming out and Lynch liked the idea and said you know the magic started working again and that may be true but I do think there's also still an element of can't go home again here. And I think this is like the manifestation of that. Like, okay, here it is. We brought them back together. And look at how elemental the end of this episode is. I pointed out in the first part of Journey Through Twin Peaks that the core elements of the series, that everything else is kind of peripheral to or revolves around, that the elements that make it a story and that fall apart and disconnect at various times and are sort of brought back together but kept at a distance are Cooper, the town, and Laura Palmer. Cooper moves across the train of the town to pursue Laura Palmer's mystery. Well, what do we have at the end of this episode? Everything else has been pared away. We have Cooper, we have the town, and we have this Laura who is both there and not there. We're kind of back to square one, but now in this very sort of almost dry form where it feels sort of rote, like, okay, here we are. Back in Twin Peaks, here's Cooper, here's Lara. What's going to happen? Nothing, I guess. It's just, there's no, there's nothing there. There's nothing pulling them together. 
you know, until, of course, that last final moment. But driving back into Twin Peaks, you get that very flat feel. It's really that sense of, like, driving into a place at night, and very matter-of-fact, very mundane. They cross a bridge, this, they drive past our Double R Diner, and Lynch made a point with Peter Deming of making all the diner scenes just glow in The Return, like he wanted it to match. And I think with the sheriff scenes, too. I don't know if he said this, but I feel it with the sheriff scenes. Wanted that to, like, match the look of the old series, even though there's sort of a melancholy to it because it's digital, it's 25 years later. But, you know, there's sort of an aura, an after aura of that original vibe. Here, there's none of that. It's just like, here we are driving through the locations, which is just great. <laughs> it works so well to do, to convey the mood that they they want to convey here. So Carrie and Cooper, they pull up to the Palmer house. They get out, they even hold hands. It's a sort of strange moment where it's just something they feel like compelled to do. And they walk up the steps to the house, knock on the door, and who answers? This woman with blonde hair, a little bit like Laura, as if that's significant. I don't know that it is. Probably not, although maybe that's what inspired Lynch to invite her to act in this in the first place, because she was not like cast in this role, which leads you to wonder, who did Lynch think was going to play this part? Did he know what he was going to do there? Was the scene written in the original script? It was shot very early in the production, so it's not like it evolved out of the process of making the whole series. But was he up there in Twin Peaks and he said, let's put this aside, let's put that aside. I don't know. No, there was a lot of preparation that went into this, but maybe it was during location scouting that he asked her. But for whatever reason, he asked Mary Reber, I think is her name, the owner of the Palmer house. That's what I'm getting to. She actually is the actual real life resident and owner of this house. She plays the resident in this scene, introduces herself as Alice Tremont. And of course, this is a callback to the Tremonts and the Chalfonts uh, because she says the people who lived there before him were named, uh, was Chalfont. These are the grandmother and the grandson figure from episode nine and Firewalk With Me. And uh, God, there's a lot we could say about that. This is already a long episode. I'm just kind of, from this point on, as we close off, I'm going to focus on the things that interest me most. And please write in, like, there's definitely a lot to talk about with the Tremonts and the Chalfonts, but I don't think we're going to touch on that too much right now. You know, Cooper realizes this isn't where Carrie, this isn't where Laura, this isn't where she lives. This isn't Sarah Palmer's house. What's going on here? You know, they're trying to find Sarah Palmer, which is another interesting aspect. It isn't just, I'm taking you home. It's specifically, I'm taking you home to your mother. And uh, there's no, she's not there. There's nothing there. There's no there there. There's, they have to turn around and leave. So they walk down the steps and the hell are they going to do? Is he going to drive her all the way back to Odessa? There's just like, they're like broken in a way, or Cooper's broken. I think Carrie's just kind of on this journey. And if you look at her face, she's a little like bugged out at times, like standing on the doorstep, kind of reacting to it all and taking it all in. It's like she's getting something, some kind of signal, some kind of vibe, but didn't quite know what it is. And they walk away from the house. They stop in the road. Cooper turns back. He points at the ground and he says, what year is this? And then, of course, we see Carrie, and she's looking up. He's looking down, and she's looking up. And she's looking at the house, and we hear the faint sound of Sarah yelling, Laura? And she screams, and Cooper looks up with a jolt, and all of the lights on the house just go out. They don't, that's not like they're shut off, they blow out all at once and the scream lingers over blackness and it's the end of the show this ending is 
all Lynch's vision of Twin Peaks. I'm not saying Frost didn't participate in writing it. Who knows what his involvement was? I'm just saying like this is 100% in line with David Lynch's take on Twin Peaks and its legacy and where its heart really lies and everything like that. Cooper can't reach Sarah Palmer, who is, of course, Judy. And again, I think this brings us back to this idea that part of the return story is Cooper's continued inability to understand the heart of the Laura story. I think ever since the decision was made to reveal Laura's killer, I think that has been the story of Twin Peaks, with the exception of Firewalk With Me, where we see Laura's story. Therefore, we now know directly what it is that Cooper can't quite reach. And even in that film, in the early sections of the film, through the proxy of the FBI and, and some of his own scenes, we're still getting that story as well, the story of Cooper unable to reach the story of Lara, the futility of it. I don't know that it necessarily has to be futile, but the way he goes about it, it is. My favorite interpretation at this point of Judy is that it's trauma. Judy is trauma. Uh, Judy is evil does absolutely nothing for me. I think it just is totally redundant. It's kind of boring. I don't think it adds anything to the Twin Peaks narrative. Maybe it's true, but that doesn't make me think very highly of the inclusion of Judy in the return, if it is true. I think my reading of it is also somewhat plausible. I think there's more to it, more things you can say about it. Obviously, there's many manifestations and things that happen revolving around Judy in this. I think if Sarah Palmer is associated with Judy and Judy is associated with trauma, and of course, Sarah herself is herself associated with trauma and uh, the white horse that seems to signify the trauma at various points, all of that's just sort of bundled together and associated and Cooper can't, can't reach it. But, you know, Carrie does. Carrie slash Laura, whatever. She's a vessel for Laura. She's a someone independent, tangentially connected, or, or overlapping with Laura, whatever she is, she's the one who looks up at the house and hears the scream and or the, the call of Sarah and connects in that moment. And again, it's again the narrative telling us, as it did in Firewalk with me, that Laura is the conduit to her mystery and to understanding whatever meaning, whatever transcendence is possible. And there isn't a transcendence in this, in this version of Twin Peaks. I really don't see that. I don't think there is. One other thing, of course, to wonder about, though, is we see Cooper at the end of Firewalk With Me comforting Laura in the Red Room, and it seems, he seems kind of wise. He seems almost more Dougie-like to me there. It seems like Dougie was not the obstructed version of Cooper that we were waiting for the real Cooper to come back and restore to his full being. It seems more like, no, that actually was maybe the way Cooper is supposed to be in a way, in a sort of comical sense, maybe not a literal one, but that is more the version that Lynch sort of idealizes, perhaps. I think there's also a meta aspect to this as well. As I said, Lynch is coming back to Twin Peaks 25 years later. He does a lot of amazing work in this series, but it comes from a different place, and part of it comes directly from this sort of longing and this sadness for what was and the knowing that you can't come back you know the thrill is gone and the series is strong particularly for emphasizing that i think this is in a way lynch's eight and a half you know this is him taking his own inability to break through to the creative space he wants to break through or could break through and turning that itself into the creative expression and the art i mean this is a series about not being able to reach the heart of twin peaks uh, with Cooper as the proxy for that. But the but of course, with Lynch, he's been there before. He does know where it is. He does know what it is. This is a work that calls back to Firewalk with me 
in a significant way, which is something I felt about the missing pieces as well, that they felt incomplete in a, like an emotional sense. Like in even Twin Peaks, the original series, there's really a sense to me, and, and I tried to make sense of this when the missing pieces came out. I said, wow, it brings the worlds of Twin Peaks and Firewalk With Me together, but not as a conclusion or a coda to Firewalk With Me. It feels like it precedes Firewalk With Me in some way. That was all I thought. If we have to put this into some sort of linear narrative, uh, even if it doesn't exist in a linear sense, I guess we could say, watch Twin Peaks, the missing pieces before Firewalk With Me. You know, if it's a rewatch and you've seen it all before, like that's the narrative journey. Use missing pieces as a bridge between those two worlds. But now that the return has happened, I almost kind of have another thought about what this represents narratively and how you can kind of view it as a structure. I think you could say that Twin Peaks branches off into two directions following the finale and, you know, deciding you're going to sort of move back uh, and, and, and look at Laura's life. The one direction is the missing pieces, and I think that leads directly to the return. And the other direction is Firewalk With Me, which is an end to itself. So think of it like a choose-your-own-adventure path. You know how you can say, turn to page 19 if you want to run to the left, and turn to page 23 if you want to, to run to the right or, or stay where you are, whatever the case may be. You know, you can take one of two different routes. At the finale, if you take the missing pieces route, you get a sense of Laura's life, but still from a distance. You get a bigger picture of what was going on with the town. You actually get some things that seem to lead directly into the return, even if something as light as Lucy being kind of silly and uh, being confused about communication. Like that's something we see in the missing pieces and not in the Twin Peaks, and that leads right into the return. So there's all these elements, and of course the end of the return is Cooper, you know, I haven't brushed my teeth yet, back in the Great Northern. And so I think you could watch Twin Peaks, the missing pieces, into the return. Most of the stuff in the return that has to do with Firewalk with me is stuff that's featured in the missing pieces. Like, I've actually wondered if Mark Frost ever watched Firewalk with me after its theatrical release. Maybe he never watched it at all. I don't think that's the case, though. It definitely seems like in 2014, he, Lynch was like, I can't, I got these missing pieces. They watched, they sat down and watched the missing pieces. And he was like, oh, cool. Jeffrey's just, Jeffrey's talking about a Judy. There's this Blue Rose uh, Tom, I'm trying to think, actually, do they mention Blue Rose in the missing pieces? Yes, he says to Cooper, is this one of those Blue Rose cases? He says, I can't tell you about that. So all of these threads that are in the return that spring from Firewalk for me actually can spring directly from the missing pieces. But more importantly, on a thematic kind of emotional level, uh, the missing pieces keeps us at enough of a distance from Laura's trauma and keeps it related to the whole kind of town and Cooper that it almost feels like that leads more directly to the return in which we're still chasing after whatever the Laura mystery meant and you know Laura's point of view is still like we still haven't gone directly through that trauma and I think when you go directly through the trauma you end up with Laura and the angel in the red room so that's kind of my vision of these two things now is the place setting, so to speak, of Twin Peaks, of these three elements, Cooper, Laura, and the town, and building up all of these elements to work with and leading you toward an interest in the mystery of Laura Palmer, and then seeing that go in one of two directions. Seeing it go off into the missing pieces and then the return, or seeing it come to its culmination in Firewalk with me. One thread you could say is Cooper's journey and the other is Laura's. So that's kind of the way it feels to me now. You can't fit them all within one linear structure, but you can view them as two branches. And when the evolution of the arms says, and Audrey says, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Is it? I think 
they're pointing off screen in a way to firewalk with me and saying, this isn't that story, but that story's out there and it may still be the heart of this story as well. We're just severed from it now. So that's kind of my read of that. One other thing to note about this ending, and this is something true that I talked about in my video pairing side by side, Neon Genesis Evangelion and Twin Peaks, is that the end of uh, end of Evangelion and the end of Firewalk with me kind of correspond with these two characters uh, together, just the two of them. And I think the devastating aspect of that is even more true in The Return, where you have these characters kind of disconnected, kind of connected. One of them you're not even sure is the same version. Like, people have wondered, is that Asuka at the end of end of Evangelion? Her face looks a little different um, as she, like, merged with other characters. Like, what's going on here? You know, you have Shinji and Asuka on a post-apocalyptic beach and Cooper and Lara on this sort of, like, desolate version of Twin Peaks and the Palmer House. I thought that was an interesting correspondence to note. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode is going to cover season three, part 17 and 18 together, the whole finale. We're going to look at the mythology of it, what takes place in the spirit world, and what is the lodge lore that we explore in this episode. 